You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. I think we're underway, John. How you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you, Glenn? I am okay. I am almost completely recovered from COVID. You might be able to good. detect a little bit of a rasp that lingers in my voice, and I may turn my head to the side and cough once or twice before this broadcast is over, but that will be many fewer times than I would have done a week or two ago. So I'm I'm feeling pretty good. This is Glenn Lowry. We're at the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv and at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. I'm with my regular conversation partner, John McWhorter. He teaches at Columbia University. I teach at Brown University. We call ourselves the Black Guys at bloggingheads.tv. And we're back every other week uh, here at uh, the Glenn Show and uh, once a month Q&A for $10 subscribers at the Patreon platform who get to ask us questions, which we will address on a monthly basis. We got that coming up pretty soon, John. We do. Yeah. Anyway, it's the Glenn and John show. So John, how you doing, man? Oh, you've already told me how you're doing. You're good. I (laughs) saw you on Bill Maher. That's what we should be talking about right now. Wait a minute. Everybody, everybody needs to look up John's appearance on Bill Maher. You were fabulous, John. Thank you. You know, I, I, I had fun with that one. I was um, I was pleased that Bill kind of let me take the driver's seat, which I wasn't expecting because he has an awful lot to, to say himself, and he's um, yeah, he's a he's a brilliant man. I mean, I know he's controversial, but I was thinking this is really going to be kind of one on one on one, but yeah, he kind of let me say my thing, and you know, it's they gave me about fifteen minutes, which is a lot, but it's still fifteen minutes, and so it's not like anything was going to be deep. But if anybody wanted to have a primer as to how I've been feeling since roughly June 2020, that appearance definitely kind of captured it. And I must say, I had forgotten, especially these days, how much fun an audience can be. And I mean, I say how that as fun a, what? I'm sorry? an audience can be. Like oh, I said yeah. that as a teacher. Like I've been teaching to Zoom yeah, yeah, where yeah. you can't hear the laughs. It was, and even actually, it was only 30 people because they can only have 30 people in. But what with audio enhancement plus how enthusiastic the audience was it was such a high just to say something and to hear the audience respond in some way and that kind of got me going because you know, we've barely ever had that for about a year i hadn't realized how central that was to my existence so yeah, yeah, i'm glad me, you let me just tell people something I, excuse me for interrupting i want to hear about your experience at bill maher but i just want people to get the format so the format at bill maher is he has a single guest they sit face to face across a coffee table or whatever and uh, chat for the first segment of his show. And then he has a panel on the second. I had expected when John told me he was going to be on Bill Maher that he was going to be on the panel, but no. John was the special guest of the week who had a one-on-one with Bill Maher. (laughs) Now, during these one-on-ones, the audience will often interrupt with applause. And usually it's because Bill has some zinger of a funny line that they are responding to. But in this case, John stole the show getting the audience time after time after time to respond affirmative to, affirmatively to some clever little twist of uh, phrase that he had to offer in his uh, commentary. Mm-hmm. So you stole the show, man. I mean, <laughs> I have to I tell the audience that. Good, good time. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad you liked it. I walked out of there thinking that was worth the travel. It was, yeah, yeah, I hope they have me back. Fun. Yeah, I'm sure at some point that we'll have you back. I'm still waiting, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, they'll have they'll have you. I, I'm yeah. quite sure. 
You're very telegenic, too, if people can't tell that from looking at your mug here in this uh, <laughs> this uh, podcast. Uh, the camera really liked you. I mean, I thought it was you were natural. You were comfortable. I said, John's going to have his own show before too long. You know, they had um, they had a really this is getting trivial for the Glenn show, but they had a really good makeup person because we were in there and usually especially with guys, they just kind of smack it on because we don't care. But I was saying, this is important. And so I had all these little specifications and she was an artist. And so part of that was that I looked like a mannequin by the time I walked out of that room and then they shine the lights on you. It was, it was fun to have that done to you once. It was when you get a real artist who does the makeup, but yeah, it was, I, I don't mind looking at it. And usually I hate watching myself. Yeah. And it was, it was her. So that was fun. So if you wanted to uh, recapture um, one or two of the moments in that interview with Bill Maher and share with uh, with our audience here and now, you know, what points that you made that you thought were, were killer points or issues that came up that uh, you think deserve amplification, what might they be? At some point, I said that, um, yes, we can't, cannot oh, be yeah. Black America's slope. Right. And what I meant was, you know, Barack Obama, yes, we can, which was, you know, one, theater, but two, it was good, good inspiration. Yes, we can. There are obstacles, but yes, we can, despite what you might think. And nowadays, I often feel like the idea is, yes, we can't. The most sophisticated thing is to demonstrate why we can't and to watch how white people feel about it. So I just said, yes, we can't is not a proper slogan. And and, and the audience seemed to to like that. And then also one thing that I'm glad got in and those things go by so quickly and you're just kind of bouncing off each other. And so you can't plan, but one moment that I'm glad is in there and I've only watched it once. That is the honest truth. But a moment where I was happy that that person who was me said it is that Bill started to touch on systemic racism and how it really does exist. And at a certain point I said, yeah. And there are people who are watching this who are going to say on Twitter, don't they understand what systemic racism is? And I looked out at the audience, which I knew was like the world. And I said, yes, I know what it is very well. But and I thought, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad I said that because there would be a kind of person who would you know, take out the primer and want to explain to me that racism is not just Archie Bunker and the N word. So I was glad to get that in. And so those were the two things that I was happy to see, that you and me know what systemic racism is, and two, that professional pessimism is not what gets people ahead. But it was a fun, fun 14 minutes. Okay, now at one point, I remember you saying something like, I am a white supremacist. If, <laughs> if you, There was a conditional on it. If yeah. I have a, something, then I'm, I'm a white supremacist. Then you turn to the audience and you say, so I'm a white supremacist. Uh can you, uh, you you recall what I'm talking about? I, I do, yeah. And actually, my my agent said that he was watching it and like dreading it. I was about to say that. But no, I'm glad I said it. That was where we were talking about degree, because Bill was saying oh, that's that right. there are people who you know think that we never make any progress, that it's all just window dressing. And I said, no, there are still problems, but there's an issue of degree. And I said that I know I, now I don't remember what I said, but me would say we're taught that it's some kind of higher wisdom to pretend that degree doesn't exist and that all of this is like quantum physics. But I said, no, there's an issue of degree and I try to acknowledge it. And I said that if you want to call me a white supremacist for acknowledging degree and not going along with the professional Cassandraism, then I said, yes, 
I, John McWhorter, am a white supremacist, if that is the case. Yeah, I did. I did say that, and I stand by it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Glad you remember Nasty that. Words. That's the book that's out, and you got to plug it at the end. And again, I saw you stealing the show. I don't think that was a part of Bill's script. <laughs> it was not. It was not, but I thought, as much fun as that was, have to plug the book. And you know what happened to the book? I'm the, interested. The, the Quaker in me doesn't do this, but... I'm going to put this out there because you have to put it out there. I have to put it out there partly to keep it going. Do you know that after that appearance for about two days, that book was the 7th, 8th, 10th, 9th, 12th, 8th best-selling book on Amazon? I was stunned. It put it right up there. And so the book is doing really well. The power of television, it's just, it really never, never ceases to amaze me, especially because the longer we go, the less TV I watch in that way. I actually don't watch talk shows. I watch narrative shows and, and I spread them from 1950 to 2020. So I'm not, I, I don't watch Jimmy Fallon, you know, it's just not what I yeah. do. But boy, those shows, they get you around. So yeah, Nine Nasty Words, my little book about cursing is, is doing very well. I'm I'm so touched that, that I can't even think around it. It's just, you know, I don't expect my books to do that well. That well. You know, they they, they get out there, but this was I was stunned. So well, this yeah, is, uh, it was a good HBO. This is HBO and I don't know what Bill's audience is, but if it were twenty million, I wouldn't be surprised. So if, you know, one percent of one percent of 20 million people, you still got, I think, 20,000 books. That's a lot of books. Exactly. <laughs> That's going to make, make the needle move in Amazon. <laughs> it's really something. And so it was, it was, it was quite a week. I had, I've had quite a, quite, quite a week. It's been a busy week and a heady week. And, um, I think that week is over, but yeah, I hope the book keeps doing well. And, um, it's a ride. It's definitely a ride. Okay, I'm interviewing you now, John, which is a little bit unusual, but let me persist. (laughs) So I remember losing the race. That was your first big book, uh, 2000, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember (laughs) the argument of losing the race. That argument was black people were lagging for you had three reasons, as I call anti-intellectualism, separatism, Mm -hmm. and uh, focus on victim uh, victim Mm -hmm. status. Um, Amazingly, I think your argument from... 21 years ago remains pretty relevant. Uh, and we were going to talk about the victimization part of that, uh, of that and whether or not, how, how do we get out of losing the race kind of thing uh, is, is uh, a pressing question because 20 years is a long time, John. And to be stuck, are we still stuck in somewhat of the same Called the sack here uh, in the year 2021, as you perceived us at the end of the 1990s. And uh, what what do you see? I'm asking you now as the interviewer, uh, as uh, some possible ways that we might uh, break the logjam and, and change the conversation, which is what we here at the Glenn Show, we black guys, we woke buster black guys here at the Glenn Show are trying to do. We're trying to change the conversation. Uh, and this victim thing seems to be very deeply etched into the psyche of uh, the African-American population. I wonder what we can do about it. Yeah, losing the race had a nested argument. It was saying that there's this obsession with victimhood, an exaggeration of victimhood. And what flows from that is a sense that, therefore, 
the rules for us must be different. We must change our standards of evaluation. And where we are with that today is Ibram Kendi, that whole notion of what we need to do. And then what's nested in that sense that the rules must be different is the idea that to be an intellectual is something, unless it's about racism, is white, that it's something other people do. I was saying that that is nested within that sense that the rules for us need to be separate. And I referred to the cult of victimology. I had picked up the word victimology from it being used one time by Orlando Patterson, and I just thought it was kind of catchy. In retrospect, I think that the word victimology, although it's kind of catchy, has an air of dismissal about it that made some people think that I was making fun. But here we are 21 years later, and I want to get past things. You know, very often we are justifiably called these two guys who just sit here complaining. And on this, I really do want to explore getting past the victim thing. And part of it is that we have to scientize it, so to speak. I'm not, that's not really a word, or if it is, it, it shouldn't be. But I am noticing that there's a literature about a, a victimization mentality among human beings. And notice, I didn't say black people, I said human beings. There is an identified exaggeration of victimhood that some people fall into. And they fall into, this is what's important, they fall into this regardless of whether they have been victimized in any significant way. So you might become a professional victim because something horrible happened to you. That might happen. But this literature shows that Actually, nothing might have happened to you. You just fall into it because it's a psychological bomb in many ways. And I recommend, for example, in Scientific American, and this isn't all I read. I actually kind of went down the rabbit hole on this until you know, the, the jargon got to the point that I couldn't understand. But Scott Barry Kaufman, who I'm actually going to have a talk with on his podcast very soon, he did a very nice summation of a lot of this sort of thing in a Scientific American article where you get a sense of who's been working on this. And the people who are working on this are not thinking about black people, or at least they don't show it. Kaufman actually is an exception on this and that he does discuss the black issue somewhat. But, you know, these are people in academia. They're not going to touch race issues. And so even if they're thinking about it, they're not going to say it. But when you read about the the symptoms of this victimization complex, you cannot help but recognize a certain strain of black thought, which is exactly the kind that I was trying to get at back in the year 2000 that we're still talking about. And this is the question. And this is what I want to run by you. This is where our society is at this point. 1970, society is learning that racism is more than the N-word and burning crosses. You're learning that there is systemic racism. You're learning that there are subtle racist biases that you may not have been aware of. And there's a whole industry of people who are burning to teach America that, and I'm glad that they did. We are much more sophisticated about that now in 2021 than we were in 1970, all of us for the most part. So America learns that. Now we're at this very fragile point, though, where because black people are human beings, a certain number of us are going to fall into this noble victim complex because it happens to all human beings. But when it happens to black human beings, what you do is you pretend that racism is worse for you than it is. You pretend that racism is worse for your people than it is because it gives you a feeling of significance. This is not a black thing. This is a human thing. But the way it manifests itself among black people is that. And what that means is, for example, Wilfred Riley's book. Um, Wilfred Riley's book is right here, actually. Um, 
It's a whole book. Oh, about hoaxes. Yeah. Get this, folks. The rape, the hate crime hoax. Yeah. And so I've, what interviewed, people, I've interviewed him here. It's yeah. in the archives of the Glenn show about that book. Yeah. Watch that one again, folks, if you haven't seen it, because what people are thinking is, oh, yeah, there's the occasional chucklehead. But the problem is this is hard. This is a hard thing to say. It's not occasional. It's it's rather endemic. There's a great deal of this kind of exaggeration, enough that could fill that book and enough that what you see, all of us are thinking it sometimes. A lot of these people are exaggerating. You know, it's not that there's no racism. It's not that the cops are anything close to angels. Far from it. But there's a lot of exaggeration. And the question is why? And you can't just throw up your hands. Maybe you're more interested in other things. But why is the operation of this victim of the, Glenn, I'm going to go on for another 30 seconds. Victimization, okay, victimization complex within the parameters of this culture where white people are uniquely positioned to hear out black people talking about their victimization, both real and unreal. This is where we are right now in this culture. And I don't know if we're up for the challenge. And that is that you have to be a kind of person. I think of a person, frankly, you, everybody who watches this know, knows that I have these archetypes, maybe stereotypes in my mind. I think of this probably 50 year old educated white woman who lives in Ann Arbor or Park Slope or something like that. I even know this woman's name, but I'm not going to say what this woman's name is. And she is watching all of this stuff. She understands that racism is more than Archie Bunker. But she also sees that a lot of things that have been happening, especially since 2020, these manifestos from organizations where the idea is to turn everything over to this anti-racist commitment as if the organization before was racist when it clearly wasn't in any coherent sense. She sees that and she knows that's not right. That woman's challenge, and it's not only women, but I just think of a woman, that woman's challenge is to identify at what point she is comfortable saying to black people who make these kinds of claims and white people who make it on our behalf. No, because some of this stuff is based on a frame of mind that human beings can fall into that is not engaging reality and all psychologists know it. And you can't pretend that black people are exceptions because of slavery, Jim Crow and redlining. We're not exceptions. It happens to us too. And what it means is that we have to face that this is real that this is not just the occasional person, that there's just some of that. It's real. It's a problem. A great many black people are exaggerating in a way that deserves to be dismissed. I'm so sorry. Dismissed. And white America is at a point where it has to understand at a certain point, you have to have the spine to say no. And I'm thinking that if we think more concretely about this victimization complex, we can do that. The idea is not just to say you people are stupid or we're not going to listen to the concerns of you people. The idea is to understand what the symptoms of symptoms are of this victimization complex, as opposed to observing genuinely grievous and fixable things in a society. Glenn, do you think that society can do that? Because I think that's what the issue is, knowing where a certain line has to be drawn and acknowledging that black people can be noble victims, just like people in Malaysia, Australia or you know, a, a, a white upper middle class suburb. It manifests itself among black people in something that's creating this very challenging moment on what's being called a racial reckoning that is too often just a racial blackmailing. And everybody knows it and, and everybody's afraid to do anything about it. Are we up to it? No, uh, I think we're going to persist in this mode for a while. I think you put your finger on the, the central point right at the end. It, it's a racial blackmailing. It's a power move. This is power that we're talking about here. Um, I, I, I want to say a couple of preliminary things. First, uh, 
uh, Wilfred Riley is talking about not just exaggeration. He's talking about hoaxes, lies. Yeah, it, it wasn't just that you overstated the injury. It was that there was no injury at all. You actually put the noose outside of your own dorm room door or whatever it might be. Uh, so I think the uh, analysis of that uh, has to also include credulity. How, how The fact that you have the anticipation that the lie is going to be believed. It has to include that the press are not going to actually expose the lie. In other words, you know, you, you're confident that the investigation is not going to get to the underlying truth because the, uh, uh, the, uh, powers that be, whether they be in the media or they be in the administration of a university or whatever, are, uh, are reluctant to dig very deeply into, uh, what's going on. I, I see that in, you know, a lot of these cases where cops are supposed to have victimized uh, unarmed or innocent people. And when you look a little bit deeper at the thing, you find out, well, they may have been unarmed, but they certainly were not innocent. And it turns out that they have a long history of behaviors that are problematic. But to report that would be to go against a certain kind of narrative. And people know that it's not going to be reported, et cetera. So I think that I think it's a power grab. And it, 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 it feels good to be a victim and it feels good to be a victim who's lionized. And you know, George Floyd, a victim, a victim for sure. I'm not confused about whether or not he was victimized, but, but he, he had a, he was buried in a state funeral. That was a state funeral. There was a gold casket. Uh, the, the eulogies preached over him were emblematic of national statements about the uh, sort of uh quickening consciousness and commitment to redress deep American. Now, I don't know that the incident that befell him, regrettable. The man was a murderer. He's been convicted. I'm talking about Derek Chauvin, the man who killed George Floyd. He's been convicted rightly uh, for his crime. So it was a horrible thing that happened to him. But the aura of victimology fit with a certain kind of narrative about the reality of race in America that was so overwhelmingly powerful that the event becomes narrated with a blinkered kind of uh, very narrow, not looking left or right, not looking deeply, not thinking critically. I mean, we, we haven't gone and interviewed anybody who knew George Floyd when he was 18 years old, except for them to say he was a choir boy uh, kind of thing. So, you know, there, there's a, a kind of phoniness to it. And, and I don't know that the forces at play in American cultural, political cultural life are anywhere close to coming to grips with this. And I'll give just one example and I'll turn it back over to you. In the interview that Michelle Obama gave to Gail King that was aired on CBS Morning News, she was asked whether she worried, as uh, many Black families do, about the well-being of their children, uh, possibility that they'll be victimized by racist police officers and things of this kind. Her daughters, uh, Sasha and Molly, are of uh, age now where they're approaching adulthood. They they have a driver's license. They go out on their own, this or that and the other. And Michelle Obama allowed us how she did have some concerns as any black parent would have about a police officer seeing the back of their heads, mistaking them for somebody else because of some kind of uh, implicit bias or some kind of stereotype or something like that. Now that fits the victimhood narrative perfectly. I mean, what what, what is that saying? That's saying 
that I don't care what happens to you in life if you're black. I don't care if you become a billionaire, if you're Oprah Winfrey or LeBron James or Michelle Obama. I don't care if you become president of the United States. I don't care if you become one of the most uh, uh, lionized and and celebrated personalities uh, in your uh, cohort of human beings on the planet. You're black in America and the cops still might drag your child out by the hair and beat the shit out of them for no good reason, just because they're black. Now, first of all, that is false is in my considered opinion as a description of the risk being born by Sasha and Malia Obama in white America. It's simply false. It's not true. They're not at any significant risk. You are correct. Of, of, of being beaten, having the shit beaten out of them by cops because they look like a criminal. The word being significant. Yeah. Yeah. Not at any significant risk. It's not something that a mother needs to stay up at night. So I think it's simply a false statement. It's a, I could almost call it a lie. Secondly, I don't believe that Michelle Obama even believes it. I don't believe that she actually worries about the well-being of her children from their estate on Martha's Vineyard when the kids venture into Edgartown uh, for a meal or whatever, that a Martha's Vineyard cop is going to fuck them up. Excuse me. I don't believe she even believes it. I believe it's a performance. I believe that she's saying what fits a certain kind of political psychological narrative that is a part of the power play being undertaken in American politics by people like herself and the Democratic Party and the race mongers like Al Sharpton and Benjamin Crump and the others who are getting paid, not only paid in the currency of money, but paid in the currency of celebrity and political influence. This is deeply etched into the American political psyche right now. Those people are not going to let go of the power levers that they have their hands on uh, voluntarily. And the lack of courage in uh, the, why am I the only one who's criticizing her? Charles uh, Blow in the New York Times <laughs> wrote in response to Michelle's statement that, ah, finally the Obamas are unbound and they can talk truthfully about race relations. This is Charles Blow, the columnist at the New York Times, the African-American, Charles Blowhart, as my wife, Linda, I mean, my, my late wife was Linda. She would have said so if she had known him. My current wife is Lawan, lovely Lawan, <laughs> and, and that's how she refers to Charles Blow, Charles Blowhart, uh, pontificating at the New York Times, not only uh, the contrary of what I just said, which is that it's untrue about Michelle Obama's children that they're at risk from the cops. And uh, Michelle Obama knows it and said it knowing that it was untrue. Not, not only does he regret, uh, uh, reject what I just said, he goes on to say, ah, at last the Obamas are unbound because they're no longer in the White House. They're no longer accountable to the political process. They don't have to hold their punches anymore and they can tell the truth. The whole thing is full of crap. A lot of people know it's full of crap. I cannot be the only person who knows that that's a, a BS power move that Michelle Obama played, but nobody is willing to say it. It's always interesting to me, do they mean it? Um, definitely, when you say performance is where I get more of it. Um, Charles Blow, without a doubt, has this complex. How dare you psychologically? Yeah, I know. Fritz. I know. And I can't be doing it formally. I don't have the training. But he certainly does fit this profile 
based on the sorts of things I've been reading him saying on a regular basis for over 10 years. And you read this literature, that's, that's him. And it's not a crazy person. It's not, not that somebody's insane, but that's him. And, you know, one answer might be that Charles Blow has shared his autobiography. There's some things that happened to him that are separate from this sort of thing. And I fully understand that. Maybe some of those things make you more likely to adopt this frame of mind. But yeah, Charles Blow is exaggerating. Does he know it? I think to a point, it's less important whether he knows it than that he puts that out there and that whatever's going on within his brain, there are many people like this archetype part slope person I'm talking about who listens to him and a part of her thinks I'm supposed to just take this straight. David Brooks is becoming that kind of person. I'm supposed to actually take this straight, even though a part of you is thinking, really, is it that bad? And so with Michelle Obama, I don't, I don't know. I, um, <laughs> you know, she's a good actress. And I mean, in real life, my, my girls are making me watch this cooking show. That yeah, I've heard about it. Yeah, with with these, there are a puppets. variety of opinions about how good an actress she is on that show. But since I haven't watched it, I do I not have an opinion. Well, I, I have heard what, people criticize her as not being such a good actress. But no, that's a, no, from the ones I've seen, off. she's natural. And remember, she's interacting with these little bits of cloth on this uncomfortable set. I've good been impressed with that, and I don't want to say that she is talking out of the side of her mouth when she says things like that. But you know, of course, we've heard her say things like that before. She is speaking in a way that people, black people who are affluent of my generation, she and I are about the same age, are expected to speak. She's been doing that since she was at at Princeton. And I've never thought that she exhibited it to any extreme degree, but I was never at all surprised by any of the things she said that the media started talking about in that vein. Blow is more extreme. But the question is, is there a coherent discourse that we can have where we can just say that? A lot of the things that Below says, for example, not just cranky people writing in letters, but in general, serious, sober people will be brave enough to say, Mr. Blow has good intentions, but it clearly isn't that bad. This is more literature than science here. And we can move on and deal with real things. That's what I'm wondering if we can have where this victim complex becomes a meme and it's not considered racist to say that there's an element of black thought that is based on this very human tendency. Cause that's the problem. A certain kind of person is going to look at that and say, it's racist. You're racist to say that it's the victim complex given slavery, Jim Crow and redlining and George Floyd. And of course we all know, most of us know that that's not real reasoning, but we're supposed to pretend. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it would give people a little bit more bravery to speak reality if we had a more scientific framework than just saying, why well, you're exaggerating. Of course, where do you draw the line? And that's a tough one. We would need to figure out where that kind of line would be drawn. But we black people shouldn't be allowed to get away with this exaggerating. And you know, some of the more clear cases are recent things such as black students getting a professor fired from his course for saying that in Mandarin, the way you pause is to say nega, nega, which means that, that, that in Mandarin, that that man has to go. Those students should be told, no, you are operating upon a victim frame of mind that happens to all human beings. We're sorry to say it, but that man is going to continue teaching. And if you don't like it, you can just withdraw and wait till there's another teacher. That should be allowed in our society. If somebody puts N and then five apostrophes on a law school exam and a bunch of students say, I was traumatized, we should be able to tell them you are exhibiting the victimization mentality. Here are its characteristics. We cannot 
base our administrative procedure on these supposed palpitations that you had reading that word. I'm sorry, but you're exaggerating and we cannot acknowledge it. If you're really that upset about reading this, then we have counseling services on campus that you can go to. Here they are. They're free. We wish you the best of luck, but please be on your way or just take the course and do what everybody else is doing. We can't change our procedure on the basis of psychological irregularities. It's your job to have them treated. And of course, certain people are going to say racist, racist. No. Could we get to a point where that just wouldn't matter? And maybe, you know, I sit here saying this and I think maybe I maybe this is a fantasy. I'm I'm thinking of a talk about 20th century television. I'm thinking of a Twilight Zone episode where you go into this alternate realm where that's the way things are. And you slowly realize that there's nothing racist about that society at all. But maybe I'm just dealing with sci-fi. I get the feeling only with that could we make some progress in our race debate in the present tense, as opposed to what would happen if we eliminated the war on drugs. But sometimes I'm beginning to think we also need that, too. What do you think would happen to a university administrator if when confronted by a situation like what happened at Georgetown Law Center, uh, when an adjunct lecturer said to a hot mic that the students in her class, in her experience, who were Black, tended to cluster with few exceptions at the bottom of the class. That was her report. It became public uh, uh, because it was on a hot mic. It was in a, a Zoom session that was being recorded. And uh, somebody released the recording um, on Twitter or somewhere, and it, it became a viral incident of a white professor characterizing the performance of the students in her class as poor, who were Black, as on average poor. Now, uh, that uh, person was relieved of their responsibilities by the dean of the law school. Uh, and there was a, a, a outraged uh, reaction from the Black law student uh, group at the law school who wrote a very strong letter denouncing the systemic racism of the law school and so forth and so on. And there were other repercussions. Uh, the white faculty at the law school were challenged to make a public statement on behalf of themselves as privileged white faculty members confessing to the possibility that their biases might be responsible for the poor performance of the students at the school and so forth and so on. What would happen to someone who said, wait a minute, before we make a, a victim situation out of this and we accuse the law school of systemic racism, let me just note, those students are actually admitted to the law school, notwithstanding the fact that you could have forecast their relative poor performance from their relative poor performance on the admissions criteria, like the grades in college and the uh, score on the law school admissions test when you decided to admit them in the first place, that The racism here, if there is any on the institutional level, is that we have not acknowledged the relative disadvantage in terms of intellectual performance of these students before they got into the classroom and addressed ourselves forthrightly to it since we're committed to affirmative action and we know, you know, whatever. And that um, the institution itself is not racist. In fact, quite the contrary. A racist institution wouldn't have admitted these students in the first place. The racism here is turning away from the underperformance of the students and not dealing with it directly and instead retreating to this easy uh, set of platitudes that you uh, have uh, put in front of us about institutional racism, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think would have happened to such a person? And we all know, depending on what that person's position was, they would no longer work at the school, you know, within about 10 minutes of making that statement, depending on what medium they did. And crucially, 
there would be no coherent explanation as to what their sin was, other than that, quote unquote, they are a racist. And that's now here's where at least I feel like I'm going to slide into the two guys who just sit and complain. But what you're talking about is why I wrote Losing the Race, because there was a very similar debate in terms of the parameters of all of that going on at the University of California in the late 90s with the discontinuation of racial preferences, where I just sat listening to this whole dialogue where serious, brilliant people and not just young ones, people with graying hair even then, were arguing as if what affirmative action at UC had been about was bringing kids from the poorer neighborhoods in towns like Oakland to Berkeley and giving them a fair chance. That had nothing to do with what was going on. The lower performance of so many black students was not about poverty. It was about other things. And yet, if you said anything, if people were polite, they just look right through you. Or if people were impolite, they'd call you all sorts of names and you simply couldn't get past it. I will never forget sitting in a room. I was more naive at the time. A couple of guys, you know, veterans of this sort of thing. These are people who've been at it since the seventies who were trying to figure out how we were going to get past the ban on racial preferences. And I at the time, silly little, silly little Johnny Mac border back then. Johnny Mac is one of my family nicknames. I wanted to see if we could get past the ban. I was sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, this, no one likes this. And I was trying to get a sense of what, what I should think. And I assumed that we were supposed to look squarely in the eye that black students were admitted with lower grades and test scores than others, almost all of them. That was clearly a fact. You could also prove it. And I thought that we all knew that and that we were going to make an argument for restoring racial preferences despite that. What was the argument going to be? And I would bring it up. This happened in two meetings. You bring it up and everybody looks at you like you said something in Hungarian. It's not like they're, they're going to tell you why we're going to restore racial preferences despite that. They're not going to explain why there has to be this allowance for black students. They just look right through. It's clear that I didn't know the program. They just could not process it. And I could tell you can tell sometimes if I pushed the point, they would have basically put a hit out on me. It was just unthinkable to actually talk about that squarely. Instead, we were supposed to talk about all of this as being about giving an opportunity to poor people as if by 1997 and eight, most black people were poor or that any but a very few who were at UC Berkeley or UCLA were poor. It was weird. And yeah, I, you know, I didn't get fired (laughs) for various reasons for writing Losing the Race, but it was considered quite the nervy gesture. And it shouldn't have been because all I was trying to do was talk about the facts. There's no brilliance involved, just facts, but you weren't allowed. Are we at that same place now? That Georgetown incident shows that we are because notice that you could not discuss do the black kids underperform? And if so, is the reason systemic racism at Georgetown? And then the issue is, if you let in black students with lesser dossiers, is the reason that they have the lesser dossiers systemic racism and that's why that's okay? There's an argument there. You could go very far with that. But notice that it never even goes that far. It's just that you are a racist for bringing up the discrepancy in performance. You let an implication hang like perfume that that discrepancy doesn't exist when everybody who's involved know, knows that it does. And you get rid of that adjunct and you move on grumbling about the racism endemic in the school. All of that is fake. And this 50-year-old person, I don't, I don't know why she's 50, but so, so there's an irony. Excuse, me for inter- excuse me for interrupting, Jeff. Just trying to get a word in here. And you're very loquacious here and you're Sorry. expressive. 
you got no, me. No, it's all good. It's all good. No, what I want to say is that I want to identify an irony here. So there's racism and there's racism. So by not taking black people seriously enough to presume that we can be told the truth about what's actually going on in our condition in our society without that destroying us and driving us into a corner where we'll throw tantrums and act like we're three-year-olds, by not taking us seriously enough, you encourage this cultural phenomenon that you have put your finger on in losing the race of uh, African-American performance being less than it might be because we have the ready-made excuse of uh, systemic racism or structural impediment or whatever that accounts for our uh, low, and, and we're encouraged not to take responsibility for our own lives. I don't understand why that's not racism. That is the regime that encourages a kind of passivity and um, uh, a sense of, uh, of spoiled fate. Being black in America precludes me from being able to do certain things. The white man will never allow me, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm not at Caltech because of systemic racism. I'm not in the, et cetera. Uh, is crippling to people, to a people. And you could be, uh, I think, uh, excused if you were to conclude that there is a kind of lack of respect for or valuation of the humanity of African-Americans that is conveyed by uh, this regime of patting us on the head. Pat- patting us on the head is not taking us serious. It's not treating us uh, as as equals. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I think there's racism and then there's racism. I said this the last time we talked, actually. There's enough racism to go around. There's a lot of racism in progressive quarters. Uh, and part of it is like looking at the homicide rate in black communities and saying, oh, that's because of poverty and racism. When in fact, it's because of murderous behavior by black people, which need not be so. It, people don't have to go around with guns killing each other. They have choices about how they live their lives. You don't take them seriously when you ascribe their pathology to uh, forces that are external to themselves. You, in effect, convey the idea that they're absolutely impotent uh, about what happens in their lives. You know, mass incarceration is a conspiracy against black people. I mean, that doesn't take black people seriously. We're not expected to obey the laws on the whole because of what? Jim Crow? The the argument, the police should be disbanded because policing has its origins in slave patrols that were impaneled in order to uh, capture and return escaped property to Southern slave owners. First of all, historically, it's completely bullshit. It's not true. You, You don't think cities with large numbers of immigrants coming in from uh, Europe had to be policed. You, you don't think they call the paddy wagon a paddy wagon because it used to be used to round up Irish miscreants. So, yeah. for, so it's, it's completely false that urban policing has its origins in slavery. That's simply a false statement. There's some overlap, but the, the, to, to ascribe it to slavery is false. Yeah. But, but, but we're going to disband the police because according to your history, they have their origins in slavery and they are therefore today's representation of the historical oppression of black people. Now, it's bunk. Pretty much everybody knows that it's bunk. Why, why wouldn't someone say so? 
They don't take you seriously. They're patronizing you. They're placating you. They're patting you on the head. And most of them are in the Democratic Party because they need your votes. Now I venture into territory where you might not be willing to follow me. They're patronizing you and treating you like a child, leading you around with this ring through your nose, keeping you terrified of the fact that white supremacists are going to come and get you because they haven't got any concrete, uh, effective <laughs> response to your condition. And they don't have confidence that if they treated you like adults and told you to pull your pants up and to stand up straight, that you'd actually be able to do it. Oh, all right. That's one part. That's a, that's a don't go there part. Yeah. And I'm quite sure that that is part of it. But another part of why my archetype will pat us on the head is because she's afraid or he's afraid that if you don't pat that person, that person rages and roars and calls you a racist and everybody can hear it. And because you don't want to be a racist in our society, which is a form of progress, a lot of people make the calculation that they would rather patronize us. I can imagine some of them over a glass of wine actually saying to their spouses, you know, I know that I'm not taking Mary seriously. I know that I'm treating Mary like and pretending that all that stuff is real. But you know, honey, I would rather do that than have her call me some kind of racist in the next whatever meeting, have her call me a racist on Twitter and then have all those people join in. Honey, I just, I'm sorry, honey. I just, I couldn't take it. I have to admit it. I couldn't take it. (laughs) That's what I think those conversations go like. And I can completely understand it. It's just that, um, I wish that that person would say, got the the wine, and she says, and you know, instead of patting Mary on the head, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do? Hear me out. I'm going to say that she is exhibiting a victim complex, and I'm going to explain to her what that is. And I know she's going to be mad, but I know that as I move along, if I'm trying to be a good person, that that is gooder than patting her on the head. Honey, honey, am I right? You get it, honey? I would like to see that conversation happen. I can see it. I almost wish that you and I could talk to every one of these people individually, but you can't. Society is too big. I wish we were Estonian. I wish we could just do a tour and you know, there are like 17 people in Estonia and we could talk to everybody, but we can't. I think that we're right, but... We've got to talk to Mary in some different way. I don't know why she's Mary now, but we have got to talk to Charles Blow in some different way. And I hope that this archetype is capable of it. But we have to use the psychological literature. We have to put science behind it. It has to be, honey, did you read this article? Here, read it. You should read it. That's what we need. Now, you're there in New York City and you travel in certain circles. There's, it's a non-zero probability that you and Charles Blow, the distinguished columnist at the New York Times, could find yourselves in the same cocktail party. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about how you imagine that might go. Now, I know I'm, I've called him Charles Blowhard. I'm a Blowhard. I've said he's an empty suit. I said he's an idiot. I mean, in, in past uh, discussions about Charles Blow columns that I've hated. So I don't expect I would have any traction with it. But you are fairly more respectable commentator than am I, John. (laughs) (laughs) 
Could you imagine any constructive exchange? I mean, I just used Charles Blow as an example. He stands in for Nicole Hannah Jones, who stands in for Tallahassee Cold, who stands in for whatever. There's a you know a large number of people. I'll be talking with uh, Cornell West here at the Glenn Show in a few weeks. So we'll huh. see. We'll see. Tell him uh, that John McWhorter has learned that he likes Stephen Sondheim and that I was very touched and amused and delighted. He likes Sondheim. I didn't. Know I will that. tell him that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that he liked Sondheim. I knew he liked mm-hmm. the blues, and I, you know, uh, I he knew likes he liked Sweeney the... Todd and company. Yeah, I, I had no idea. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> but anyway. him, in fact, if you mm-hmm. want to join the conversation, we, we can make it a foursome. I, it's, I'm interviewing him and a uh, uh, another philosopher who has interviewed him and put out a small book, uh, Conversations with Cornell West, and that's what's the, his name? That other one. Uh, his name is Teodros Kiros. He's an Ethiopian uh, a philosopher who's uh, been around um, Boston for many, many years. He uh, teaches the uh, other philosopher, teaches at the Berkeley School of Music. He's kind of the resident huh. professor of philosophy at the at the Berkeley School of Music. We can talk about it. But yeah, so okay. you're going to have dialogue with with Cornell West. I'm going to have dialogue yeah. with Cornell West and for future viewers of the Glenn show, I'm going to have dialogue with Charles Murray. Not in the same conversation. I ordered that book, by the way. Uh, I, I've got to read it. No, I think it should be read actually. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's going to have to be reckoned with. You're going to have to reckon with Charles Murray's forthcoming book uh, called Facing Reality. Uh, but in answer... Oh, uh, go ahead. Yes. Talk, in talk which he discusses that. differences between racial groups and in, uh, in, uh, measured intelligence by test and in criminal uh, participation in violent crime and uh, argues that these are very important realities uh, that have to be confronted. This is Charles Murray's new book, forthcoming. Uh, I'm going to interview him about it uh, sometime in June. But uh, go ahead. How are you going to feel about how dare you give a pulpit to blah, blah, yeah, blah? I'm going to have to weather the storm on that. Uh, the book is important. The arguments have to be faced. Uh, I'm not sticking my head in the sand. Uh, and, and Charles Murray is Charles Murray. He, he's a significant intellectual uh, observer of American society and has been for nearly a half century. So uh, I'm not going to talk to him. You know, that, those test score differences are not going to disappear because I refuse to talk to Charles Murray. Okay, now he and I can have an argument about just how much genetics plays in it and how immutable is it. And I don't agree with everything that Charles Murray says by a long shot. But the idea that he would not be given a platform because he's the co-author of Losing Ground, uh, author of Losing Ground and the co-author of The Bell Curve, I think is absurd. I I think it's anti-intellectualism in the extreme. It terrifies me, frankly, that a university would not be willing to take up the challenge of engaging and refuting to the extent that it's refutable uh, uh, arguments such as those that Charles Murray's advanced because you're going to call him a name. He's a white supremacist. That's complete bullshit. The bell curve is either right or wrong, but it's not a white supremacist text. Have you actually read it? It's a serious engagement with one of the most important questions of contemporary social life. He can be wrong, but uh, he's not precluded from being engaged in conversation because he takes a sharp opinion about something that people have strong feelings about. So, you know, I, I play in that game. That's not where, you know, you want to you uh, cancel Glenn Lauer because he talked to Charles May? Be my guest. You know, I am um, bell curve. I was interested in that debate. Never read the whole book. 
Then don't again, lose track has, of my question about Charles Blow, though. I don't want to let you off the hook that easy. I'll, go I'll ahead. give but you go a ahead. quick one about that. But with the, the um, bell curve, I tried to read the literature on the responses to that. And I remember coming out of it thinking that Murray and Ernstein must have been wrong. This is before I had much to bring to it. Um, but because I'm not a fragile person, I didn't think, oh, my God, he's a racist. I hate him. What I found myself thinking was that he's quite because I've read other books by him before I bothered with the Belker. He's brilliant. I mean, for example, I dare anybody to read Losing Ground and not see brilliance in that argument. However you feel about welfare, that was a damn good and not to mention readable book. I dare anybody to read Coming Apart. Exactly. Where he kind of pulls away from the race. Coming apart is a very important book. Excellent. Excellent book. I don't agree with everything that he says, but um, the idea that all he is is this bigot. He is also something else. In our times, he is the most articulate human being I have ever heard. Next to you, of course, Glenn. If you listen to Charles Murray just giving a talk, and yes, I have been in a room and heard him give a talk. I don't remember which one, but I have. He is the best spoken human being. It's like listening to William Jennings Bryan, except he's not even using a script. It's just he's got he's got quite a mind. And, and so, yeah, I'm going to read this this new one and I'm going to have to decide and I'm going to compare because this okay. genetics literature, it's so controversial. But, yeah, I'm not going to ignore him. No, go ahead. No, I, very briefly, because I want to hear you about what, the other thing. Uh, I was just going to say it shows on the written page. So there's in this new book, Facing Reality, it's just seamless. It's it's beautifully written. It is uh, an uh, it's a brilliant no, expository performance. You know, mm-hmm. he's walking you through the data, and and it's it's just very very well done. So it's accessible to anybody, even though some of the issues are technical. He he, it's a it's a serious treatment of a serious and difficult set of questions. Um, he, he doesn't go to the genetic thing. He stays away from, he says, I don't know why these things are here. We could talk about that in another book. I just want you to take measure of the actual evidence about differences in intellectual performance and in violent criminal behavior. And I'm going to offer some thoughts about why that's important, uh, for the problems that we're facing in our country. Um, and it's, it's, it's very well done. Uh, so, you know, uh, that's just a second what you're saying. He's an extremely talented writer and a very important social critic in the last part of the 20th and this first part of the 21st century here in the United States. He's going to be read 100 years from now by people, scholars who want to know what was going on in our time. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, there is no doubt about that. Yeah, there are are ones he does where he pushes you in places you don't want to go. He did one that didn't get that much attention called Human Accomplishment. And it talked about, you know, which people on earth have, you know, come up with the really valuable stuff. Very uncomfortable book, but once again, brilliant, you know, because the two things are not incompatible. You know, this is, this is somebody who is worth, worth listening to. But on Charles Blow, yeah, I feel pretty safe saying, um, I've been in a room with, with him twice and I may have been mistaken, but I got the feeling that he was not a fan and he did something that people of that school often do. It's not nasty, but, you know, makes very sure not to say anything to me, but hello, avoids eye contact, stays at different parts of the room. You know, I'm just the lowest of the low. He can't be bothered. He's got other stuff to do. That was my feeling. And I can imagine being a Charles Blow and, you know, feeling that way about me. And both of these times were before I had had conversations with you sounding off and everything. So I don't think it was that. I think it was just that he, you know, he thinks losing the race and other stuff that I've done is just beneath contempt. 
if he and I wound up at a party in Park Slope where people invited both him and me and then race issues came up, you know, to be perfectly honest, I feel like if, if, you know, the Marquess of Queensbury rules were observed and we weren't allowed to interrupt each other and everything was, you know, pretty pacific and normal and not too much wine, I think if certain issues came up, I feel like I could make my case against someone like him. I feel like talking about the things we've talked about, talking about the victim complex, I could patiently explain to people, I know why you found what he just said compelling, but first of all, let's separate the separate out the resonance of certain words. We're talking about the logic of what he's saying. And once we're just listening to what he's saying, let's rephrase it in simpler language. Let's get rid of these words like supremacy. Now, what I'm saying to you people here at the party is if we're talking about helping black people who need help, you have to understand that what he's describing doesn't correspond to reality. You know, I could give some statistics and I could try to use some suasion. I think I could have in my hands most of that room um, if that happened. I couldn't get across to him personally. I may have gotten him wrong based on these two times, but I would not expect to be able to, to change his mind. Utterly impossible. But I think I could get people to understand that his way of putting these things does not become truth simply because of the resonance of the words and the fact that none of us want to be racists. But we can't get across to 100 million people. That's the problem. That's not a party. That's that's an America. So I don't know. I wonder if we could operationalize this and bring it to scale. But we need science behind it. We can't just say stop playing the victim. Because everybody's thinking, you're blaming the victim. I wish that book's title weren't so good. You're blaming the victim. At what point are you not blaming the victim? At what point are you kind of being made the victim? And can you have the bravery, based on maybe the intellectual understanding, to be able to stand up and say so in order to move on with real activism? That's the question of the day. Now, I have seen you on Chris Hayes, and I have seen you on Don Lemon. So that's that's a big audience. That's a Charles Blow friendly audience. Uh, you only get three minutes or five minutes, so uh, we need to keep punching away, right? I mean, uh, we do. Okay, and so we're not going to close with despair today. We're we're going to close with the hope that we can actually have some constructive conversations with some of our uh, some of our uh, people on the other side of the divide. And maybe we can change the debate. I don't know. We're going to keep at it anyway. Every other week here yeah. at the Glenn Show, me and John. So let's keep it going. Okay, let's keep it and going. And keep John. thinking. Yeah. Uh, we'll call it a day for now. Okay. Have a good one, Glenn. You too, John.